0: Turn with me in your Bibles, if you'd like, to Isaiah, the 59th chapter. We'll be reading the first two verses for our text this morning. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God... And your sins have hid his vase from you that he will not hear. Our subject this morning is separated from God or separation from God. And I think I could truthfully say that this is the greatest problem that any of us have ever had and ever will have is to be separated from our God. I realize that in that statement I would be in the minority probably if a poll was taken, but that's all right. You don't have to be in the majority to be right. I believe I would be in the right in saying that. In fact, I would just challenge you right off by saying, have you ever had a problem greater than being separated from God? If you say yes, you need to rethink that. Because separation from God is not only a problem, it's a great tragedy. It's something that needs to be considered, and it's something that needs to be rectified before it's too late. Because as long as you're alive and living, if you're separated from God, something can be done about it. But when you die, there's going to be such a thing as an eternal separation that will compare nothing with what state you're in now in being separated from God. What I really want to talk about today in separation from God is not only what it means, but the severity of it. I think this is the thing that perhaps even sometimes we as Christians do not realize is the depth and the degree of the separation from God. And of course, we grieve today when we talk on this subject because we were once sinners lost, dead in trespasses and sin and were separated from God, and it didn't seem to bother us too much. And that's the tragedy, is that those who are separated from God don't realize it or don't care in that regard. So this is a universal tragedy, even though the prophet wrote this to Israel, the things that are stated here can biblically be proven of all of humanity that there is a separation from God between the creature and the Creator due to sin that has been in effect in the past, it is in effect in the present, and there is an eternal effect in hell of separation from God. Well, I think we should all understand and know obviously what the cause of this is, as it's stated in verse 2 there, It says, but your iniquities have separated. So sin is the great cause. If it were not for sin, there wouldn't be separation from God. But the the problem lies in sin itself. And this is why I said earlier, I don't think none of us understand the degree or the depth of this separation because we can't comprehend the depth of sin and its leavening effects and all that it does In the lives of men, women, boys, and girls. I want you to think about sin today as we talk about separation as a wedge. All right? And I'll be referring to sin in that regard, sort of an analogy as we go through this message today. Sin is a wedge, it always divides, it always separates, it always divides apart. Two things. Sin has never brought anything together but sinners to sin. And that's not a good thing. But sin drives apart wherever it goes. It's like saying the wages of sin is death. Wherever it goes, it brings about death. It brings about sorrow. It brings about suffering. There are certain effects of it that will never change because that's the nature of sin. But today, sin causes separation. Wherever it is, to what degree it is, it will separate. It has separated sinners from God. It will separate you and I as believers from God when it gets in our lives. Fellowship with God is breached by one thing, sin. And that same sin can hinder fellowship between you and me and we and each other. Sin always divides, pushes apart, severs. It's a very grievous thing to think about what it does. And it's one directional in that. Always separating. The only thing that brings back together is God's love and God's grace. But sin always drives apart in the scriptures we see this is what it does from cover to cover do we not wherever we look whoever we're looking at the scriptures reveal this is the testimony of what sin does another reason why i believe the bible i see that very thing through my own life experience And I look at human history and I see that the Bible is true because this is what sin manifested in selfishness or covetousness or greediness or however it manifests itself. It always does the same thing. It brings about separation and sorrow and eventually death. It it does things that cannot be rectified or restored by human means. Israel, of course, is a great example of the Old Testament of separation from God. They were the elect nation. They were the apple of God's eye. They were the seed of Abraham. Yet we continually see the Old Testament prophet going and speaking to Israel about what? Their sin and the separation from God as Isaiah does right here. Separation due to sin, idolatry, what have you. And history bears out the same thing since the children of Israel in New Testament times. Sin has been doing the same thing. It does it on small levels. It does it on huge levels. The children of Israel, the nation of Israel, the seed of Abraham, that nation is to this day separated from God by the sin of rejection and denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah, and many other things also, but that being one of the primary things. You look at nations that in human history, like England and and America and others, that again were great due to their belief in God, but sin has gradually severed those nations from God. It's been a willful choice, a willful degrading and downhill course. So sin will separate a nation, a people, a tribe, a family. And of course it separates right down to where we are, us as individuals. It knows no limits. Wherever it goes, it is a wedge. Think of that today. Think of that today. I'll tell you, it'd be a sad subject. If we did not have verse 1, it would be a indeed a hopeless subject to talk about sin and all the damage that it does. But thank God that where sin has abounded, grace can and does much more abound. Well, let's talk about three things. Let's talk about its origin, let's talk about its severity, and let's talk about its solution, shall we? First of all, the origin or antiquity of sin and sin itself. And we call many times sin missing the mark. And it is God's mark. It is God's bar. It is God's standard as revealed in God's holy law. And God's holy law shows that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because uh, as the Bible says, sin is such a severe thing that if you've only sinned one sin you might as well be guilty of all in the sight of God. It's that contaminating, it's that vile, it's that abhorring to a righteous and holy eternal God whom we served as our Creator. But sin originated with an individual called Lucifer, did it not? Many people think to Genesis 3, but sin didn't originate in the Garden of Eden. It originated a little further back than that. With the angel known as the anointed cherub, the son of the morning, the son of light, Lucifer. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 and 15, we read these words as we read of the personification of Satan concerning the king of Tyrus. Verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. And I have set thee so, thou was upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created, till iniquity was found in thee. Now, if we're going to go, which watch what we're doing, and trace out the origin of sin... Ezekiel 28 and verse 15 is where it all started. And it was found in the created being, the high and lofty angel known as Lucifer. It manifested itself in pride and rebellion, and he and his cohorts were kicked out of heaven because he was not being satisfied being next to God and ranking the highest it appears among the angels, but he wanted to be God. That was his iniquity. That was his sin. That was his downfall. So there's where it all begins. Then we go to Genesis chapter 3 and see this individual in the form of a certain serpent being instrumental in bringing sin upon the creation and upon mankind. And you know the story in Genesis 3. We'll briefly rehearse that. Satan was instrumental in deceiving the woman. The man was deceived also. Chose to fall. Chose to rather disobey God and fall. And when sin was injected through their disobedience, through the instrumentality of Satan, in eating of the forbidden fruit, sin then and there separated not just Adam and Eve from God, but it separated all of us at that moment, at that time, in that place, in Adam from God. That is the fall that manifests itself in Romans 5, 12 as Adam is the federal head by one man's sin. Death came upon all men. We're all made sinners in Adam. So that separation came there. You weren't separated from God at some former year of your life. You were separated from God many decades ago, many centuries ago, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned in that regard. Now, the effects are most noteworthy. And we must say this to show you, again, what sin did then and how sin continues to manifest itself today. We know this by our own experience. We know this by the biblical record. And we know it by what we see in others. But the effects of sin were noteworthy. The first thing we read about, and I'm not going to go there and read it, I'm just going to highlight these and move on, is that Adam and Eve knew they were naked. That wasn't a problem before. The bottom line on that is sin brings about a guilty conscience. They were aware of something. Something is now wrong. That's what sin does. Now, everybody's got a guilty conscience because everybody's got a conscience and everybody's a sinner. Now, you might disagree with that, but I would say to you, oh, it's just in remission. Sinners, like all of us, we just push it off in a corner somewhere, but it's there. It's there. The law of God is written in the heart. The conscience is there, and it's a dirty conscience because it fell in the fall. And people just choose not to deal with it, so we shove it off in some far corner of our mind and, and keep it boarded up there and don't let it get out so we'll feel good all the time. After all, as sinners, we want to feel good, don't we? We don't want to feel dirty and vile and guilty and shameful and all of that. But that was the first effect of sin. Guilt. Guilt. But that can be a good thing. and In fact, God uses that. When God quickens us to life, that conscience comes out of hiding and convicts us of the sin that's always been there, right? So that's a good thing. We thank God for the conscience and a guilty conscience at that. But what we actually see the effect of them doing, not only after they tried to cover up their nakedness, they ran from God. Sin separates. They didn't run to God. They ran away from God. They were the first ones to run from God, but they weren't the last. And when we hit the deck of running, when we were born in this world, we did just what they did. We were running from God. Nobody has ever been born that run to God. Our sin nature takes us from God. Our sinful desires takes us from God. Our guilty conscience takes us from God. Men love darkness rather than light. So they run from God, not to God, because the light manifests that our deeds are evil. So they ran. They ran. And not only did they run, but they hid from God, didn't they? They hid from God's presence. Now, we don't read about God running away from them before they ran away from Him, did they? That's what we read. And that's what our text says. It's your sins and iniquities that have had caused God to turn His face and His back on you. You did it. But before he turned from you, you'd already turned from him. That's what happened with our first parents. And they hid from the presence of God, and then it don't get better. It just gets worse because this is what always sin always done. Sin multiplies itself, and the more it multiplies, the more it divides and separates. And when you read Genesis 3, and God comes to the garden in the cool of the evening, calls out to Adam, and you see what they've already done, it don't get better, it just gets worse. Sin always makes things worse. And when you think it can't get any worse, sin will take it further than that. And divide and separate and make more misery, more sorrow, more grief, more pain. And again, eventually, death. What do we find them doing next? Lying. Lying and playing the blame game. Sin actually caused Adam to blame God for his problems. The woman that you gave me, God, she made me do it. Now, I don't think any of us can understand. We understand what he did, but don't, we don't understand the depth and the workings of sin in the human heart to cause the creature who was created by God, created the image of God, created in a perfect garden, named all the animals, and was blessed to be given a... In perfection to turn right around as soon as sin has contaminated his heart, his mind, and his whole being, and saying, God, it's all your fault because you made her and gave her to me, and she caught. I mean, do you think you understand the depth of that? I don't think any of us do. That's what sin does. We'll stand in awe of the terrible effects of sin. Blame God, blame her, blame others, blame anybody, but don't take any blame for yourself. So this is what it does. And of course it brings death. God said in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And when they ate, they died spiritually right then and right there. The sin of disobedience in the Garden of Eden caused their relationship with God to be severed at the moment they ate of their fruit. I mean, when they sunk their teeth in it, when they tasted it, when the juice flowed in their mouth, their soul was separated from God. Their God consciousness, their will to serve God, their delight in God, their pleasing in God, their communion in God, it all went away right then and right there. Literally, not to be cute, but with the first bite. They didn't have to consume the whole fruit. They didn't have to digest it when they took it. And when they ate, when they bit into it, when they tasted it, the separation took place right there. That's quite a sobering thought, is it not? That we all died right there spiritually. Then, of course, 950 years later, Adam did die. He died a physical death. He was separated from this world into the other world. From the land of the living to the land of the dead. God's word being true. And so shall we all be. And then God being God and having such an abhorrence for sin and now for those who have committed sin, which was open rebellion and criminal to a God who had done everything for them and told them only not to do one thing. What happened? Driven from the garden separation manifested by the flaming cherub that was set there to protect the tree of life. So you see in the fall itself, and I don't know if you think about that a whole lot, but again, think of separation. Think of sin as the wedge. I don't know how many of you here have ever used a wedge. Men have. I know I've I've used a wedge a lot, splitting wood, split a lot of oak in Arkansas with a wedge and a hammer. Didn't know what a log splitter was. Don't know if there was such a thing then at that time. I don't know. I won't tell off on myself, but nevertheless, you don't have to use one much. You get a pretty good impression of what a wedge is, what a wedge does, the problems, the complications, the effect, and all of that. So sin was a wedge. And the thing about a wedge, you know, is it's taped. It has a point, and then it gets bigger as it goes up. So the further it goes down, the wider it separates at the top. That's what sin does. And you think of that today. Even if you're a Christian today, sin just keeps working its way down. Working its way down. And even little by little by little, it continues to separate. You ever seen a root growing concrete or something like that? It just keeps growing and what happens? The crack just keeps getting bigger. That's what we're talking about. This is what sin did in the garden, and this is what it has done, and this is why we find ourselves, when we come into this world, separated from God. The severity of that separation, again, beyond our comprehension, but we know it is hereditary. The Bible makes it very plain. The psalmist said in Psalms 51 and verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. What's the psalmist saying there? He was saying that he had sinner parents and he couldn't be nothing but a sinner. That's what he was saying. My point is this. We are born into the world sinners. You don't have to become a sinner. You became a sinner in Adam even though you didn't exist. Except in the mind and purpose of God centuries later. Before you were ever separated from your mother's womb, you were already separated from God. That is a sobering, staggering thought, is it not? That's what the psalmist is saying here. That's the effect of sin. That's the severity of sin. That's the separation of sin. The 58th of Psalm, verse 3, follows up by saying, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. And it goes on to discuss... The details of that. Estranged from the womb. That's immediate. Yeah, but it says wicked, preacher. Well, who are the wicked? Sinners. It's universal. We only have the wicked and the righteous because of God's grace. But the grace came later. All of sin to come short of the glory of God. So the wicked is you. The wicked is me. The wicked is us. The wicked is all mankind in Adam. This is a natural course. This is what sin does estranged. Estranged from what? From God. From the womb. So again, we're not born good and become bad. We were bad when we come forth because, as David said, we were shapen by sinners. Therefore, we can't be anything but sinners. Sin is that wedge that we start out with. And if that wedge of sin that lies in every one of us as children is not disciplined, is not checked, is not restrained, it can go to the most terrible places as we see manifest in history and in our society today. A sinner will just go deeper and deeper into sin if God's providence and restraint does not stop that. In other words, I'm saying today, yes, even you and I could have been the worst of the worst had it not been for the providence of God. Sin knows no limits. Sin again, one direction continues to separate. Self gratification, self propagation, self preservation, just me, 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 self, self, self. We all look back on our lives when we were lost and deadened in sin with loathsome abhorrence. But I'm so grateful it wasn't worse than what it was. Could have been worse. Could have been worse. But this is what it does. Just think about it. It always just takes you further and further and further away from God. Sin, the multiplication of sin, the indulgence of sin, the degree of sin, it's that wedge that just goes further and further. And again, we don't have to look anywhere but our own lives to know this, do we? I mean, if if that's all we had to look at, we'd have to say, Amen, the Bible's true. I see it in my own life. I mean, the further I went, the further I wanted to go. The more I had, the more I wanted, the more, you know, and the more never satisfied sin just goes on and on. And then we look outside of ourselves, we see it in our others. We see it in others. We see it in Israel. We see it in America. It don't no matter where you look, it does the same thing. It just continually increases the distance between the person The people, the family, the object, and God. That wedge just working its way further down. More division. And you you see this so clearly in the parables, in the words of our Lord, don't you? I mean, we think immediately you should think probably of the prodigal, right? I mean, the prodigal went away and he just kept going away away and away and away and away and away and away and away, didn't he? I mean, that's what sin does. And we glean from that those three principles, don't it? It takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. That's what sin always does. We see it in uh, the lost sheep. Ninety and nine, and one, what? Goes astray, takes away. The parable of the lost coin, one is lost. Again, separation. Separation, lostness, is always what it does. The details of it in our text can be easily seen. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but detail is given here in it, in the uh, verses that follow after our text in verses 3 through 8. It talks about murderous hands and bloods and, and filthy talking and lips and lies. No justice, no truth. Hatching out evil just like reptiles do to eggs and offspring. And on and on. The feet run this evil. Hey, shed, verse 7, shed innocent blood, wasting, destruction, thoughts, no peace. And this is repeated similarly in other words in the book of Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. It's what sin's destruction and separation does. There turns from God just like Adam and Eve because of sin. And God then, as the text says, in return will turn away from the sinners because of his abhorrence of sin in that regard. Moses said this before the children of Israel when he rehearsed the law in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Exactly how this would happen, what would happen, how it would play out in the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy and verse 17 and 18. Listen to Moses' words. And this is God's words. And he's speaking of when they turn away and go into their idolatrous, whoring ways. Verse 17, Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. And they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought, and that they are turned unto other gods. So again, notice this very clearly, our text and what Moses says here. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. They turned their backs on God, and God turned his face from them. That's the way it works. That's the way it still works today. When sin turns us and separates us from God, then God turns his back on us because we're sinning on his sin. And the whole idea of this is with one objective in mind. Are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And why is our God not among us? Rooted where? Our sin. That's the whole idea. Now, God abhors sin. He hates sin. Sin is here and sin brings glory to God. But God doesn't like sin. Don't let anybody tell you he does. He takes no pleasure in sin. Sin is, as we say, kind of like government, a necessary evil. For we would not know anything about God much if evil was not present with us. We certainly wouldn't know the goodness of God if we didn't have something to compare it to evil. We wouldn't know the grace of God if we didn't know the separating part of sin and so forth and so on. So God ordained it to be here and how it got here and that it would be here and the duration it will be here and all things concerning sin and its punishment. But sin ultimately brings glory to God because, again, God can overrule sin and He does overrule sin. And if God has saved you, He's already overruled sin in your life by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's what Moses said would happen. In the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy, in verse 10, we read these words. He found him in a desert land in the waste, howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. That's Israel. That's Israel. It's not that God didn't care, God does care. That's why they were chastened as they were. That's why God would turn his back. Because he cares. But he will not associate with sin in that regard. Back to the book of Isaiah, page or two back in our Bibles, in Isaiah 57 and verse 17, For the of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. Not only Israel, but that's the course that sinners take. So when you turn from God, God will automatically hide his face from you. Because God looks upon sin and you when you're in it repulsively. Jeremiah 5.25 repeats again one more thing, one more time. Your iniquities have turned away these things and your sins have withholding good things from you. Not only does sin separate, sin robs. The best things are found in God. The best things are found in fellowship with God, in communion with God, in obedience with God. And sin does not allow that to happen when it separates you from God. Anybody that's been a Christian very long knows that certainly to be true. So sin is very severe in its separation in the lives of sinners. But there is a separation worse than this. And that is, of course, after death. The Bible says that after death, there is such a thing called judgment, according to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. So while you may be separated today by sin, if you are indeed lost, you are separated from God. You need God more than you will ever know. And if you don't believe what I just said, you'll have eternity in hell to rehash that statement the proof of it, the truth, the veracity of it. Every sinner needs God more than they know. We all know that now who are saved, don't we? Oh, how we needed him then. Oh, how we need him now. Oh, how sinners that are severed from him need need him. But how sad it will be to hear those final words of God and final judgment that will sever you and your soul forever throughout all eternity to a place of torment. I cannot emphasize this enough. It is recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 27. If you're not concerned about being separated from God in this life, if you put off heeding the gospel message of repent, come and believe upon Christ for the remission of sins, then these will be literally the last words you will ever hear. I'll tell you, it makes me shudder to think of this, that except by the grace of God, this is what I would have heard, and deservedly so. Luke 13, 27, But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are, Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. The last and final words God will speak to guilty, rebellious, unrepentant sinners. Sinners who lived in separation from God, enjoyed separation from God, would not heed, turn back to God would not heed the warning that if you continue as you are, you will ultimately perish. They will also have to listen to the words of God to others, Come you, blessed of my Father into the kingdom I prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But you over here on the other hand, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, I get things stuck in my mind at times. It's just like a record. It just goes on and on and on and just keeps repeating itself. I despise it. I look forward someday when those little things like that will go away. I don't get to choose what they are. (laughs) It just something will crop up and stick. And I mean, it just, you know how it goes, as the old record goes. But can you imagine? No, you can't. I know you can't. That's a rhetorical question. Neither can I. But it's. We can't imagine eternity. But can you imagine, can you imagine a day? Let's just take it a day. 24 hours of hearing these words over and over in your mind. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. I can't imagine that for 24 hours repeated. Much less for an eternity. But that'll be the last thing God will have to say about those who have willfully stayed separate from God. Well, if we had to leave it there, it would be a sad case, wouldn't it? But we don't have to leave it there because our text speaks to us of God's salvation, doesn't it? There is a solution for the separation that sin has caused. And in fact, there is a word that we love, that is the opposite of separation, a theological word, but it's a very simple word, and it is reconciliation. And if you're lost today and separate from God, I have one thing to say to you, be reconciled unto God. That's your greatest need, is reconciliation. There's just one problem, though, that wedge of sin. You can't be reconciled to God and keep sin in your life. you got to turn from sin. You've got to acknowledge it is sin. you got to acknowledge you're guilty of sin. You must heartfelt repent of that sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to remove the penalty of that sin. I'll tell you, I don't know. This probably won't make much sense to any of you all unless you've done it. But I, I have numerous times split wood. When I was a boy and a young man in Arkansas, and I've driven a steel wedge with a sledgehammer into a piece of white oak or post oak that had knots in it, and you drive that thing down in there, and I'll tell you what, you've never seen anything any tighter in your life than that wedge in there when that wood will not separate or is knotty or any other kind of piece of wood if any of you men have dealt with something. There's other kinds of woods also, boat arc, different other things. It's tough, man. And you have to put other wedges in there and use an axe and everything else to try to get that. I'm telling you, it's laborious. And I say that for this simple reason about the impossibility of the sinner to do anything about the wedge of sin that's been driven between him and God. It, it's, it's like that. It's like wrestling with that wedge trying to get it out of that post-up. Except it's worse. Because a sinner not only can't do it, a sinner's unwilling to do it. Unless God intervenes. A sinner can't save himself. If you've got sin in your life today, you can't get it out by yourself. There's no remedy for getting it out by yourself. There's no way you cover it up and make God smile upon you by trying to hide it like Adam did with some fig leaf self righteousness of your own. If you're lost today, the sin's wedged there. And it'll be there on the day of judgment unless God removes it. And that's why if you've got sin today and you've unrepented of it, saint, sinner alike, God is the only solution. And that's it. What does the text say? The Lord's hand is not shortened. Boy, I found myself a lot of times not having enough power in my hand to do what I wanted to do, haven't you? And struggle with the hands that I have that God's blessed me with to accomplish something. Think about this. The Lord's hand is not shortened. The Lord's not lacking. When I think about a a shorthandedness in that, I'm thinking about the reach. Hand shortened, you know what I mean? That means means his hand, I can't reach out to you. God can reach any sinner anywhere. Any sinner anywhere. There's nothing lacking with God. Nothing lacking in His power. Nothing lacking in His ability. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, And we say to you today, if you're lost and separated from God by your sins, wherefore He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession by them. That's your only hope. There is no reconciliation to God except by the grace of God, through the Son of God, through His death at Calvary and His blood. That's the only thing that removes the wedge of sin and its penalty from sinners. That's it. We sang a song. Think about it when we sing it. He is able to deliver thee. Others have gods that can't deliver nothing. Our God can deliver from anything. The worst sinner from the worst pit of miry clay, the worst stench, the worst hog pen, the worst past, God is able. I love that, don't you? He can reach any sinner. His hand is not shortened. He brought Israel out with a mighty hand. And I don't care who you are today. If you're saved by the grace of God, it was the mighty hand of God that reached out to you and saved you. The Armenian says it's all about the sinner reaching out to God. That's not what the Bible says. Our text says it's about God reaching out to the sinner. In fact, it's repeated again uh, previously over here in Isaiah chapter 50 and Verse 2, wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for thirst. Now there's the ability of the hand of God to say. God is able, and we preach that God to you today. His ear is not heavy dull or insensitive. He hears, he responds. He did it with Israel, he does it to sinners. If you're lost, undone, separated from God today, you need the saving grace of God. You need God's arm to deliver you. This preacher can't deliver you. This church can't deliver you. There's nobody, nothing, nowhere can deliver you. Except the saving grace of the arm of Almighty God through the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It knows no limits. It lacks no power. It can reach anywhere, anytime, any place to enter any sinner. What did he say? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? What did Hebrews 7.25 say? He's able to reach, to save to the uttermost all that what? Call upon him, come unto him. And I would say to you like this, I'm going to put the ball in your court if you're lost today because that's what the gospel does. The gospel tells you your condition. The gospel tells you where you're going to end up what's going to happen to you, and you have only one course of action. Don't try to fix it. Cry out unto God. That's it. Cry out unto God. The Bible says, His ear is not dull and insensitive. God is open to sinners. But make sure of what you say to God. If you're lost and undone and separated from God, don't start telling God how good you are. He's not going to listen to that. Don't tell God anything in order to be saved. Ask. Ask. If you're lost today, you're the one in need. God's the only one that can supply. Ask. His hand moves to save those who come to Him, who ask of Him forgiveness. I think this is clearly seen in a particular incident in the book of Mark chapter 14. And I'm going to read it and wrap this up. Mark chapter 14 disciple named Peter wanted to walk on water like Jesus. And he did for a little while. But the bottom line is, and the point I want to make is, when does God extend that mighty arm to save to a sinner? When he hears that sinner cry out for help. Not before. Hear me now. The hand, the arm does not move until the ear of God... Here's the crying out of hopelessness, helplessness, and repentance from the sinner. Perfectly illustrated right here in verse 31 of Mark 14. Let me get in the right place. See if I got it right. I've got the wrong text. I'm sorry, it's Matthew's gospel. I said Mark, didn't I? I apologize. Let me turn there and see. Matthew 14, verse 30 and 31. Peter is walking on the water. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. He began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and called him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? That's the way God saves sinners. When sinners cry out to him, not about their self-righteousness, but about their need, about their sin, about their desire for forgiveness, that's when the hand of God moves and saves sinners. Not until, and not on any other condition, does God save other than that. That's why the gospel demands a summons. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. You're still in Matthew. Just turn back a few pages. In chapter 7 and verse 7 and 8 Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asketh receiveth and he that seeketh find it. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. God's ears always open. But there's a time when God will hear the cry of sinners no more. We don't know when that day is. So our admonition to you is today. Today. If you're separated from God, you should have a fear of being eternally separated from God. And the only thing that can be done, can be done about that is you crying out to God as Peter did. Lord, save me if you do that truly with your heart of repentance and faith and those graces the mighty hand of God will reach out to you wherever you are today we who believe are living testimonies of that fact when did God save you when you cried out to him when you asked when you knocked when you knew you needed forgiveness you do that today and God will save your soul. Those of us who have been saved look forward to the day when our hope, our great hope, will give us a body like His and even the sin that now separates us as Christians will be taken out of the way and there will be no more separation from our Lord and Savior. The penalty's already been taken from those who believe. But one day the hindrance will be taken away in what we call glorification. Even so, come Lord Jesus.